Um, so, so you guys know for the last few months, I've been talking about this on the weekends, but for the last few months, I've really been thinking through, um, really thinking through and, and going to different scriptures and trying to figure something out that I really do believe is not something that, it's not quantitative, can't, can't really figure it out. But I do want to figure out more than I know, and I think that's always possible. But this is really an unknown, is why, why do some people choose to serve God and why do other people not? Why do some people really have a heart for God and some people don't? Now, I've heard a lot of different things over the years from all kinds of different angles, scientific and DNA and all kinds of stuff. And, and um, you know, the, the concept of um, nurture, nature, or, you know, why? Can, can you get to a point, and this is, and I've had this discussion actually quite a bit, that there's a lot of belief in our, in our um, country today, and I think all over the world, that, that uh, you can get to a place where, um, no, 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 not get to a place. Let me start differently. You can be somebody that is incapable of serving the Lord. You can be that person. Not get to, because that's a different subject, but you can be somebody. In other words, you're born to not be able to serve God. And some of the, it comes from two or three different angles, okay? Um, one is a predestination mentality. There's a lot of people in, in specifically mainline, I was about to say evangelical, but it's mostly mainline groups that believe that in, in a strong predestination mentality. In other words, um, Judas, Judas Iscariot, he betrayed Jesus, right? Came up, um, kissed Jesus, and um, that's how he betrayed Jesus. Well, there are, there are um, Christian theologians that would say, adamantly say, that um, Judas was created by Jesus to betray him. That he was created by Jesus. Now, there's two. It's not just predestination, okay, that he was predestined to that. It's also, you have to have some other things. Predestination doesn't get there by itself. Okay, you have to have some other theology, right? So if you take Calvinism, and that's the belief of Calvinism, is believes very strongly that Judas Iscariot was created by Jesus to betray him. So therefore, and I'm going to say it a little differently, and a hardcore Calvinist wouldn't argue with this, but a modern Calvinist struggles with it. Jesus created Judas to go to hell. That's the Calvinist mentality. Okay, why? Well, because uh, they believe in limited atonement. In other words, Jesus only died for some people. He didn't die for everybody. Right now, if, if, um, if all you've grown up in or, or is, is a church like ours or, or at least strong enough evangelical uh, either Pentecostal, charismatic, going that direction, not going backwards into evangelicalism, but, but, but going toward Pentecostal, charismatic kind of side of evangelical, then you're not going to, that's a hard thing to wrap your mind around. If you grew up in it, to me, it's still hard to wrap your mind around um, because it's not theologically accurate, but um, it's at least more uh, easily um, embraced. Um, I, I, I think I mentioned, this has been quite a few years, but I think I mentioned this once before. So I went to Denver Seminary, and um, Denver Seminary was conservative Baptist, which they say they're a non-denomination, but they're conservative Baptist. And, um, and uh, specifically, the Old Testament department is hardcore Calvinist, and New Testament's a little more Wesleyan, but hard, hardcore Calvinist. And, and uh, the chair of the, the, uh, my discipline, which was intercultural studies, which was missions. When I first went there, it was a missions degree. And then uh, it, it kept evolving until by the time I graduated, it was like a leadership degree with some intercultural wisps of wind. But, um, 
but I kept it. They allowed me to keep the, the intercultural studies, the missional studies, uh, even when I graduated. My degree still, still says intercultural studies, but it was gone by the time I graduated. Okay. Now, the chair of that was a retired missionary, been on the mission field in Cortovar for 30-something years um, in uh, conservative Baptist think, um, groups. Okay. He was a Calvinist. Now, he would say he's a four-point Calvinist. I don't want to go into that, but I don't think, I don't think there is such thing. I don't think you can be that, but... Um, but he was a Calvinist, so he believed in limited atonement. Jesus only died for some people. And they get that from scriptures that talk about the select and the remnant and all those kind of things, and that there's a couple scriptures in the New Testament where Jesus talks about that he had known his before uh, creation. Um, those, those scriptures can be a little tricky because what we're talking about is the foreknowledge of God, not um, uh, the individual decision of the soul the individual path of a person, we're talking about God's ability to know everything, okay? Those are not the same thing. Does God know whether you're going to go to heaven or hell? Yes, he knows that. But does that mean he has determined it? No, those are two different subjects, two completely different subjects. Okay, now, with that being said, we were talking, I had class after class with him. He taught probably at least 40% of my classes because that was my degree path, and he was the chair, and he loved teaching those classes. And and he stood up, the, the, my last semester, he stood up in a class about 50 or 60 students in there, and it was on um, the kingdom of God. That's what the class was about, great book. And, uh, and he says, I just want to say something. He said, I've never said anything like this, and it's very hard for me to say this. He said, but I think it's important that I say this. He said, I am a Calvinist. I believe in limited atonement. He said, but I have to honestly say, God has changed my mind. And then he gave me one of the greatest compliments I've ever received. He said, and Scott's the one that made me think it through. Because every time we'd have a class, we'd go into the subject, and I'd say, there's too many scriptures that disagree with this. Plus, guys, think about this. Why would Jesus only die for some? If he was going to die for some, couldn't he have chose something besides his death? If it wasn't for everybody, why be all in? If you're not allowing everybody else to be all in, why would you be all in? And, and he stood up at the end of that, at the middle of that semester and said, I've changed my philosophy. He said, I'm now a three-point Calvinist. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not, uh, you'd, have to really, you'd have to really look through Calvinism to understand what I'm talking about here. There's no such thing as not, Calvinism all fits together. You can't take one pillar away, the whole roof collapses. Um, it's the same concept with, with what we as Pentecostals believe. You can't take away things like the gifts of the Spirit or the supernatural miracles and stuff like that. You can't take it away. The whole thing collapses. We believe the Holy Spirit empowers us to witness. If you don't believe there's an empowerment of the Holy Spirit that's separate than salvation, then what's the, the whole thing collapses. Okay? So, um, so going back to this, I, I really do believe that Jesus died for everybody. And that was the greatest gift that he could ever give humanity. So here is the question. I, 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 I guess I would say I've been struggling. I haven't been struggling with it. Like, do I believe it or not or whatever? Or do, you know, is my Christianity hinging on It's not that kind of struggle. It's a, it's a tension in my mind and my spirit theologically that I need to understand this better. I need to understand this better. Why do some people choose Jesus? And why do some people not? And then, 
And you, and, and you can go graduating in either direction of that, okay? Why do some people choose Jesus and are passionate about him and then, and then go away? You know, kind of a prodigal mentality, right? Why do some people really grow in the Lord and pursue? And then some people understand and accept him, but they don't really pursue the Lord. They don't chase after him. So, so really their existence, if, and, and it depends on which day you catch me, depends on how strongly I go either direction with this. Were they even Christians at, at all? I mean, that's more Calvinist. But how can a Christian just be nominal all their life? Are they really Christians? I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to answer that. I'm just, there's a frustration that says, when I look in Scripture, there's a pursuing mentality that defines who a Christian is. So if you're, if you're not pursuing, I had somebody explain this to me one time. Well, it's like marriage. You don't have to have a good one. You're still married. Really? That's, a, that's the best you can come up with? That's the best you can have. You're still married. You know? Yes, sir. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so, so obviously, we we strongly believe in free will here. Okay. Now, again, if you go if you go down a predestination mentality, then your free will is taken out. But really, of all of the concepts of theologically that you can hear, the idea of predestination seems to make the least amount of sense. There's just too much scripture that just tears that apart. Jonah. Jonah did. Jonah wasn't it wasn't made. He wasn't made to go to Nineveh. He got on a ship and went the other direction. Predestination. You think that was God's plan for him to run from God? Now, because if, if, if predestination is true, then that means any sin you ever created was predestined by God for you to do that. Nobody buys that. Nobody believes that. So they try to couch it and, and turn the language differently. So we believe strongly in free will. So here is the question with the concept of free will. Because no matter how much you surrender to the Lord, you still have free will. Okay? It's not like I had this conversation. I've mentioned this before. I had this conversation with my mother. Now, this is some of the, you want to talk some of the, the weird mentalities that can come up in Pentecostalism. This is, this is one of them. Is that we over-holified stuff in Pentecostalism when I was growing up. We over-spiritualized stuff to the point where it became irrational. Okay? I had this conversation with my mother one time. She was talking about my great-grandfather. He was a church planter. He helped start the Assemblies of God, planted churches all through Texas, all kinds of stuff and, and things like that. So, 
she was talking about how he walked in the spirit and he would pray for people, they'd be healed and all those kind of things. He was a great man of God. Um, I, I met him, but he died like when I was two, so I don't remember meeting him. But, um, but I mean, I've heard from all family members, anybody that knew him is an amazing man of God, preached truth, prayed for people, supernatural things happened, all this stuff. So she was talking about how when um, uh, Grandpa Usselton, that was his name, Usselton, when Grandpa Usselton was in the spirit, and then she would start attaching things. Says, well, you could tell when Grandpa Usselton was in the spirit because of this, because of this, whatever the case is. And she would say things like, um, well, when he got to dancing, he would dance around the building that, man, he was in the spirit. So as a kid, I just never questioned that stuff because I saw dancing all over the church when I was growing up. It's, it's what people did in Pentecostal churches. But as I got older and became a teenager, I began to really question some of the stuff. I'm, I'm not, definitely not against dancing, okay? I'm, I mean, church dancing. I'm definitely against world dancing, right? In fact, I've told my kids forever, kids, be careful because sex will lead to dancing. So, I, so yeah, somebody takes a while. But, um, but I, I believe, in fact, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've said this before. I, I actually like dancing, world dancing, too. I just don't think people of the opposite sex that aren't married should be doing that together. If you all just want to get up and just groove, as a, that's fine. But this is why I've always said, because my kids, I didn't, I didn't get to go to dances, but I didn't know why. I told my kids, you're not going to dances, and here's why. Because you're a 14-year-old boy. And all 14-year-old boys go, got it. You know, they understand. You grab a girl and you start getting close and rubbing up against her. Do I need to go on? Right? So, um, but I actually like dancing. I'm a good dancer. I've worked hard at some of the moves out there. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I'm not against people dancing in church. In fact, I like to see it. Um, I don't like to see it when, when you can tell it's just somebody goofing around or being about themselves. You can tell the difference. You can feel the difference. You know the difference. People being about themselves or really just saying, you know, I'm just in the presence of God. I just, I, I don't know how to express this. I'm going to express it this way. Right? So, my, my mother was talking about how my great-grandfather was in the spirit when he did that stuff. So as, a, as I became a teenager, I, I began to ask questions about this. And you had to be careful about asking these questions when I was a kid. You were questioning the Holy Spirit himself. You were taking a chance of quenching the Holy Spirit or blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I literally had adults say that to me at different times when I asked questions. Be careful, but don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I'm like, so you're saying to me, if I say, hey, what about this? That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go to hell. I have no option. I'm going, some of the things that we did. And, okay, so, so I asked this question one time. So, Mom, you're saying that when Grandpa Usselton danced around, that he was in the Spirit. What do you mean by that, in the Spirit? She would say he was no longer in control. It was totally the Holy Spirit. Now i got another few questions. Because I don't even understand what that means. So I asked her, so mom, you're saying that Grandpa Usselton could not not dance? He had to dance? Yes. So he would literally look down and his legs were doing this and he had no control. <laughs> like he could just go to sleep, but his legs just still kicking it. Don't you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You know, is that kind of conversation? How do you win? You know, in this kind of conversation. So, 
So I said, okay, so give me some other examples. Because she was bound and determined. If he was dancing, it was in the Spirit. There was no flesh whatsoever. That was totally Holy Spirit. He was not, he, the Holy Spirit was completely 100% in control of his physical body. I said, okay, give me other examples. Like raising his hands. She said, yes, when he raised his hands, he was in the Spirit. And I said, so the Holy Spirit was raising his hands. He was not raising his hands. Holy Spirit was raising his hands. Yes. And I said, so if the Holy Spirit is raising his hands like a kid, raising his hands up, could he lift his legs off the ground? Right? Don't you blaspheme. You know, it's that. Okay, here we go again. I'm not, I wasn't trying to be smart. I, like, I wasn't, I'm trying to figure out because here's what I realized over the years, and specifically as I come from childhood into uh, teenage years, a lot of this is de determined by me. But that's not what I was taught. And that's not the mentality that people had. I literally thought when I, when I spoke in tongues, it was going to be completely an out-of-body experience, and I could literally look in the mirror, open my mouth, and my tongue would just be doing all kinds of words, and I was not in control. I literally thought that. The Holy Spirit was going to take over my mouth, and I was completely not in control. And I realized it's not true. It's not even close to true. When I pray in tongues, when I speak in tongues, I am the one speaking. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through me, but the Holy Spirit's not in control of my mouth. I'm in control of my mouth. He's in control of what's coming out of it. I'm in control of my mouth. I'm the one that moves my mouth. I'm the one that makes those noises. I'm the one that does that. But it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The unction is a word we used to use. The leading of the Holy Spirit. I don't understand the words, but the words are what I'm doing. When I raise my hands, I raise my hands. Holy Spirit doesn't grab my hands and pull them up. Say, it's time you got your hands in the air. If I'm going to dance, and I've done that, if I'm going to dance in, in the Spirit, I'm choosing to dance. Now, here's the antithesis of all of those things. I can also choose not to do any of those things. Holy Spirit's leading me. I can say, I'm ah, not. And I don't think you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I don't think you're attacking. You may be quenching the Holy Spirit, but that's not a sin. Um, that's just you're missing a moment. You're missing an opportunity. Why? Because, guys, we believe in free will. We believe that you get to make choices. Jesus didn't make you get saved. But he's the one who saved you. Right? So here's where we come to the next few steps. All right? Is every single step of life are choices, 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 choices. Every step. We're choosing. I've said this statement many times over the years. When I say this, everybody will nod their head and they'll agree, yeah, that's... But down deep in our spirit, I, I have met very, very, very few people on this planet that really believe this, truly, truly believe this. You can serve Jesus just as powerfully as Paul did. You can serve Jesus just as powerfully as Peter did. Remember in Acts... Peter's walking down the road. They're coming and bringing people to laying them down in the street so Peter's shadow would touch them. And when his shadow touched them, they were healed. You and I 
We can serve Jesus to that degree. So here's the question. Why do just a tiny, tiny percentage of people ever even want to go that direction? And going all over all the things I said earlier, from the point of saying, do I even accept Jesus? Two people can be standing side by side and, and hear the gospel message. One of them chooses Jesus and the other doesn't. Why? Yes, there's free will, but that's not an easy enough answer for me. I got to know i got to know stuff. i got to get to the bottom of that. Now, again, I do believe you can't get to the bottom of that. But I don't think my efforts are futile because I'm trying to get more. More. Whatever. Understanding, wisdom, whatever. So why can two people that did accept Jesus, why does one of them really go on to serve the Lord greatly and one of them does not? They both understood the truth. I mean, this is the parable of the seed and the sower. But... But even that only tells us the stuff. It doesn't tell us all enough, in my opinion. Okay? So, let's, let's look at some scripture. Matthew chapter 19, verse 20. Um, young man comes to Jesus and says, um, um, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, have you um, obeyed all the commandments? And, and this is where we came in. He says, I've, I've obeyed all these commands, ten commands. I've obeyed all these commandments. The young man replied, what else must I do? His pursuit, this is the part, I talked about this a few months ago on the weekend. His pursuit is very interesting to me. His question is very interesting to me. We don't know his motive, though. That's the part that, that gets confusing, is we don't know his motive. Why is he trying to know this answer? Why is he asking this question? What's he trying to accomplish? Does he really want to have eternal life? Does he really want Jesus, the teacher, to tell him truth that, that potentially contradicts what he thinks? Because the end result is that's not what happens. When he gets a, a big enough contradiction, he, he resists. So what is his motive? And by the way, we don't know. I've supposed different things at different times and, and uh, posited things, but I, we don't know the answer to this. What is Jesus's, I mean, what is this man's pursuit in Jesus? Here's another thing that I think. I think he asked a lot of people this question, or something very similar. I think he asked a lot of people this question. So if he asks anybody else, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders at any level, what are they probably going to tell him? How do, I, how do I inherit eternal life? Obey the Ten Commandments, follow the law of Moses, right? Obey the Ten Commandments, follow the law of Moses. He already had that one under control. So by the time Jesus says that, and I do believe that the reason Jesus says it, in fact, I'll just go up. He says, um, um, what, deed, what deed must I do? What I have to do in action to inherit eternal life? And uh, uh, Jesus says, um, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. And that the, I believe the reason Jesus says this is because he knows that's the answer. That's the pat answer. That's the pat answer before the cross. But see, Jesus is about to die on the cross and change the rules. Not change them. That's not the right way to say it. He just ups the ante on everything. He raises the bar so much on all things. But here's the cool thing. When Jesus raises the bar, the yoke becomes easier. That's the interesting thing about how Jesus does that. When Jesus says, this is what used to be sin, now it's this. And he says, but it's way easier now. You go, what? How can that be? Right? He says, uh, 
Before, you look at a woman with less than your... I mean, uh, before, uh, adultery is an action. But now, even if you look at a woman with uh, lust in your heart, it's adultery. Right? That's bigger. That's not easier. That's bigger. But then he says, but my yoke is easy. So why, how can he say those two things? If he raises the bar on everything, how can, same thing, I've talked about this with tithe. Some people think tithing is a purely an Old Testament thing. That's, that you do not read the Bible if you think that. In Matthew, Jesus says you should tithe. So it's a New Testament principle. But then he says, this is tithing. Tithing in the Old Testament was what? Giving 10%, first fruits, 10% storehouse. Your heart didn't have to be attached to it. I've said this before, and, and this confuses Christians sometimes. Tithing is a principle that applies even if you're not a Christian. Tithing works even if you're not a Christian. So, but Jesus says, you should tithe. The Old Testament concept of tithing is still true, but now what does he say? But now you need to do it with a cheerful heart. Your heart needs to be attached. You're, you need to enjoy this. You need to think. And guys, Christians, we struggle with tithe. People that have tithed for years, some of you struggle with, I don't like tithing. Every time you tithe, you think about what you could buy in place of that, right? If you're, if you're doing, let me, let me let you know some deep insight, wisdom here. If you're thinking about what you could do with that tithe when you tithe, your heart's not attached. Oh, it's attached, but not to what Jesus says. It's attached to George and Lincoln and, you know, that, it's attached. Benjamin. If, if our heart is attached to Jesus, tithing becomes something we enjoy. If our heart is attached to Jesus, praying becomes something we enjoy. If our heart is attached to Jesus, getting in the Word of God becomes something we enjoy. It's, it's not a, the yoke is actually easy. Okay? So Jesus answers, well, keep the commandments. Why? That's the answer. That's the pat answer. And I think he was waiting for this guy to go, all right, got it. See you later. But Jesus, Jesus has this great ability to pull people to the next level, doesn't he? He does this with people all through the New Testament. He says something, and they go, no, I need more. I need to understand. Say this. Tell me this. Why? That's what Jesus said. He gives them the pat answer. He does this all the way through Scripture. But the reason they come to Jesus, and I believe this guy is part of this, the reason they come to Jesus is because they know that even though he may start with the pat answer, he's not, that's not where he's going to end up. And I need more. I need more truth. You know, I've said this, one of my favorite, uh, favorite parts of Scripture, uh, that Jesus has this little um, dialogue with the woman, is when she comes up and says, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus says, um, I, I don't take the, the blessings that are meant for God's people and give them to, or should I take the blessings of God's people and give them to dogs? He calls her a dog. And she said, yeah, but even dogs get crumbs under the table. Boom. That's a, that's a wise, insightful thought-provoking woman. She, she's one, in my opinion, when I look at the New Testament, she's one of the smartest people that we have, at least the wisest, and I don't know how to sometimes tell the difference between smart and wise, but she's definitely one of the wisest people in the entire New Testament, and I think one of the smartest. She didn't even hesitate. Even dogs get crumbs. There's a whole bunch of stuff you can get from this scripture. One is, when she asks for healing, Jesus equates it to, to the daily bread. Go back to the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. I believe Jesus does that on purpose because I believe healing is something he provides for us through salvation. It's ready and available every single day. It's there. It's daily bread. 
Need a healing? Boom, daily bread. Take you a slice. And the fact that she says, well, even crumbs will do, won't they? Even crumbs will do? And Jesus says, all right, you got your healing. Now, maybe this, is, this part's a stretch. Everything I've said before, it's not a stretch. This part might be a stretch. Even a crumb is a good healing in Jesus' eyes. I mean, that's what I see there. So, so here's the thing. Jesus pulls her to the next level, right? Does the same thing with the woman at the well. Pulls her to the next level. She, she was a lot less willing than the woman that needed the healing. But pulls them to the next level. The guys that come to throw, throw rocks at the, at the uh, woman caught in adultery. Pulls them to the next level. They didn't want to go to the next level. Pulled them. By the time they all start walking away, he had already, he had them. He had every one of them. And every one of them were processing grace and the fact that grace came purely as a pure truth thing from the mouth of Jesus in a way that they hadn't experienced before. Right? So he does the same thing with this guy. Pulls him to the next level. And uh, which ones, the man asked. Jesus replied. So he says, keep the commandments. Which ones? Because for the guy, he's like, I don't, that doesn't seem good enough. I need more. Which ones should I keep? Are you rating them, Jesus? Which ones are more important? You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. But instead of just saying, so I guess I'm good, he says, what else must I do? Why does he ask that question? This is, this is the key, I think. This is a major key, Tom. Okay. Yes. Okay. So both of those, but I want to dig just a little deeper. You guys are right. Both of you are right. The reason he keeps asking, because I do believe he was asking lots of people. We don't know that for sure, but I believe that. Um, but, but here's the question, why, Tom? Why does he not think it's enough? Yes, all those, are, all those are true. You guys remember a couple of weeks ago, I read a scripture in the weekend that, that, I, that said that God puts, now I'm going to say it in a different way, that God puts that hunger within our heart to know him. Right? Another way the scripture says is that measure of faith. It actually says this quite a few times in scripture. If you just search that, just do some, some um, scripture searching just on the concept of a desire. In fact, I think it's Acts chapter uh, 17, somewhere right in there, says that, that uh, we, people, are, as humans, we're like stumbling around in the dark searching for the Lord, but he will make sure you find him. You're not on a scavenger hunt. You're on a, a hope-finding mission, and you will find it. The Lord will make sure that you find it. So this is the thing is I, I believe that God has put this desire and this hunger for us to know God deep within us. So the way Tom's saying it, he just knew there was more. Have you ever just known there's more? It doesn't matter where you're at in life or what you're going through. You know there's more. That, that has been, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, that has been the carrot out in front of me my whole life, is that I know there's more. I've experienced God in some deep, deep ways over the years. Some, some times and moments in my life where literally, I have sat for hours and hours at one time without getting up, without doing anything, just hours and hours praying and weeping and seeking the presence of God. 
And, and every second it gets better and deeper and better and deeper. I know there's more. I've experienced. I, I, this, I don't want to be divisive in saying this, but I believe I've experienced a lot more than, than most Christians do. But here's the thing. Why? I know some of the answer to that. But I think there's more. Why did this guy say to Jesus, what else must I do? Something in his spirit was stirring. I need more than I have. Just going by the rules is not getting the job done. I said this a few weeks ago. Um, I, I was talking with an older guy, 60s, 70s. And um, he said to me, most Christians he comes across have a nominal Christianity at best and do not want a deeper relation. He was talking about his generation. I said this a couple weeks ago. His generation, most Christians don't want deeper from the Lord because they're comfortable with what they have. And as long as they're on their way to heaven and, and life is not too much in turmoil, they're okay. And I told him, I don't think that's limited to your generation. I think that's all of us. And, and I can say this very, very strongly from my point of view of Christianity, which is looking out at it most of the time. That's just the reality. God has so much available for us. And he wants to use us so much. And he wants, to go, he wants us to go deeper into him relationships and supernatural, all this stuff in his word. And we just don't. We just don't. There's tons of reasons. All of them sound legitimate. None of them are. All of them sound legitimate. But why? And here's the, here's the question. I can't answer that question for anybody, but you can answer it for you. And that's what I was talking about. This is a search of this is an exercise in futility if I try to figure it out for humanity. Now, I do need to more because as a pastor, I think there's, a, there's a, a, an obligation that I have to try to figure that out better and deeper and, and in different demographics and all kinds of things um, because maybe I can say or understand or do or, or something that will help spark something for somebody else. And that comes through understanding, wisdom, those kind of things, knowledge. So, so that's part of my pursuit, but here's the, here's the exercise in futility. I will never be able to understand why Christine makes the decisions that she does. She will never understand why I make the decisions I do. You can understand some of that the more you get to know somebody. But at the end of the day, Christine knows why she makes the decisions she does. For the most part, and by the way, that can be even elusive. Sometimes you've got to dig down into some stuff before you understand why you're making decisions that you are making. But for the most part, you know why you're making the decisions. I know why I'm making my decisions. So we so come back to this guy. Jesus told him, Matthew uh, 19, and this is um, verse 21. Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, I love the fact that Jesus says perfect. Because we have spent a lot of time in Christianity making sure that no one ever has any expectation of being anywhere close to perfect. We've worked hard at that in Christianity. We've worked hard. And I don't necessarily believe that anybody can be perfect at anything on the planet. Nothing. 
I just don't think you can be. Um, but Jesus uses the term perfect. And no matter which language you search it in, it's pretty much the same definition. Perfect. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect. So here's my question, because I've always, always wondered this, and the scripture does not bet this out. I'm about to go into to trepid territory theologically, because I'm going to ask a question that I think maybe is being said that could almost be not theologically responsible. Okay, so... So Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, is there, the op- is there the possibility, the slim possibility, that Jesus is trying to push this guy so far in that direction because maybe that's actually what the guy's searching for, perfection, not truth. Is that the possibility in this scripture? I don't, I don't know for sure, okay? I don't. But I do know from my personality, I have... I have all often uh, striven, strived, stroven for perfection, right? Maybe not linguistically, but I have worked hard at perfection. I know some of the reasons for that. I was raised that way. It's so ingrained in my head. Um, uh, some of it's personality. I'm a driven kind of person. You've heard me say this, why do anything halfway? I'm not a halfway person, so if I'm not a halfway person, I'm all in, then, then the option's perfection, right? I want to be perfect at what I do. Now, I'm not near that any, anymore, okay? I really have changed over the years. I, I have worked hard at letting the Holy Spirit change some things, but back in the day, I was so workaholic, so driven, so perfected, perfect, wanting. Uh, that was who I was, all right. So is there the possibility that the reason that Jesus uses that terminology is because maybe that's what the guy's striving for? Maybe he's not actually striving for eternal life. Maybe he's striving for perfection. But for him, in a spiritual context, and that's the one he's walking in, and that's the questions he's asking because he's wanting to know this in a spiritual sense, Maybe for him, the concept of being perfect is a spiritual thing, right? He's not trying to find eternal life, but for him, perfection is understanding how to get to eternal life. How many people on the planet right now, that's their desire? I was watching a a video today. Um, I've got certain people that I follow, and I was watching their videos, and this other video popped up. One of my favorite people to watch is uh, Ravi Zacharias. I love that guy, okay? Man, that dude is solid. One of the more solid thinking, understanding theologians there exists. I love anything he puts out, I absorb it. Interestingly, if you are a follower of Ravi, you know who else YouTube thinks is equal to him that you need to pay attention to? This is the number one person. If you are a follower of Ravi, 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 they will start, YouTube will start throwing other video clips at you from another person. Deepak Chopra. Do you know who that is? You might know who Deepak Chopra Okay, if you don't know, Linda, he is a, um, he is a Hindu. He's Hindu, but he's also got some, um, some deep, um, like Taoism involved in it, some other things. But he's, he's, a, he's a devout Hindu, enlightened, 
teacher. So I clicked on his video today, just one, I don't know which one it was, I clicked on it. And he immediately starts into, in our, this was like the first sentence he said, he said, in our pursuit for higher enlightenment and separation from this world and this physicalness. Then he starts talking about the spaces in between. Figure out the spaces in between. And he talked for three or four minutes, and I have one clue what he was talking about. He said the spaces in between thought and feeling, the spaces in between physical and and non-physical and metaphysical, and the spaces in between um, uh, 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 verbalization and non-verbalization. And I was like, the spaces in between verbalization and non-verbalization you're either talking or you're not, right? But this is all higher enlightenment and finding, um, what's the term that you're trying to get when you get to higher enlightenment? Not transcendental, what'd you say? Nirvana is the concept, but it's, there's a term for it. When you get, when you reach that enlightenment, it doesn't matter. So, um, and, and it was interesting to me that, what he is trying to say is, Deepak is trying to say there's more to this life than what you see. And he is totally right about that. But he has no clue what it is. And he has no clue how to get there. And so he searches through all this metaphysical stuff. And he searches through transcendental meditation. And, and separating yourself from you so that you can find this enlightenment. And um, oh, the term was almost there. So, so you can find this and be in touch with the spiritual and the physical and all this kind of stuff. Guys, Jesus says that when you worship the Lord, you've got to worship Him in the Spirit. And that's what people are so hungry for. But then He says you've got to worship Him in truth. And if you can understand the truth, the spiritual has understanding and purpose to it. There's a reason for the spiritual when you arrive at truth. The truth is Jesus Christ. The truth is Jesus is the path to eternity. The truth is Jesus is the reconciler between us and God, the ultimate understanding of spirituality. So, so if we're trying to arrive, arrive at spirituality through something you design, it's not truth. You'll never get there. What you're arriving at is demonic. What you're arriving at is self. Self. I had a conversation with somebody recently that they were talking about, um, well, I just have to, um, how do they say it? I just have to uh, have more confidence in myself. And I said, no, you don't. That's, that's humanism. More confidence in what? Some skin and bones? More confidence in you? But see, this is what they're taught in society now, and this is what kids are taught to the prop, put to the point where, where they're actually going to miss it you got to have this self-confidence. you got to have this self-confidence. So we don't want anything negative to happen to you. You know what some of the, the better self-confidence builders that I've ever had in my life is when my butt was kicked. And then I realized, hey, that hurt. Let's think about what happened. Right? Then somebody else tries to kick my butt, but they don't. They're not as successful. Right? When you try something and you fail, but then you try again and you fail, and you try again and you fail, and you try again. In today's society, you fail once and you're a broken little snowflake that can't move on in life. It's not true. It's the exact opposite. When you fail, you're learning, you're building, you're growing. The whole concept 
of, of exercise is you're tearing down muscles to what? Build bigger muscles. When you go work out and you tear your muscles down, they don't stay torn down. They get stronger, they get bigger. I've been watching, I wish I had a short sleeve shirt on, I could show you this. After my surgery in this arm, and this, my biceps are two total different things now. You can visually see a difference in my two biceps. One of them doesn't look the same. The one that has surgery looks different. But over the last few months, I've been going and working out and working out and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, and it's starting to look like a regular muscle again instead of some weird thing somebody shoved in my arm. Why? Because you can tear it down and you can build it up and tear it down and build it up and it'll get stronger and stronger and stronger. And guys, that's part of what, that's part of what worshiping in spirit and in truth. Truth in worship can be encouraging and it can be convicting at the exact same time. And that's part of what the Holy Spirit has designed for us, is He wants us to be convicted. Because convicted pulls us, should pull us in closer and say, okay, Jesus, I've done this wrong, so help me do it right. That's what conviction should do. Condemnation says, I've done it wrong, there's no hope for me. Conviction says, I've done it right, so I've done it wrong, so help me do it right. I, I didn't please you, Lord, and I can sense that. I can sense I didn't please you, so, but I want to. So how do I do that? So we're not trying to think better of ourselves. What's the actual answer to that? When the person said that to me, I said, that's humanism. Don't think better of yourself. Don't think good of yourself, highly of yourself. Think good of the fact that you were created by Jesus. Think good of the fact that you were called and ordained by the Lord to serve him. Think good of the fact that you have an opportunity to be in right relationship with your creator. Think good of what Jesus created. Because he said, it's good. That's what you think good of, not you. You're a creation. You think good of the creator. And then you dwell on what he created. But you go first to the creator. You think good of the creator. Then you look at that in, res in respect to you, that you're part of this creation. And you're the center of it too, okay? Let's make sure we understand that. You don't look at a frog and a tree and you in the same uh, reality. You're not. You, you understand that you are the center of this thing and you were given dominion over all that stuff. So you're not on the same plane. You should be amazed at a mountain, at a tree, at a puppy dog. You should be amazed that God, you created some pretty cool stuff. But you, you think differently of yourself because God created you differently. He breathed life into you. You can worship him in spirit and in truth. And you are in his image and you are in dominion over all these things. That's a whole nother place. Right? So, so Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions. Give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then and come and follow me. Now, any time, any time you read that scripture, hear about that scripture, read it in a book, listen to it in a sermon, somebody in a Bible study quotes it, something, what's the next thing that everybody is always going to say? What? What? I hear words, but you guys not going to finish? What are you? Some, some version of that statement. Here's, here's usually what's going to... It's going to be, it's going to be uh, couched differently, but this is going to be the statement. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus wants you to give all your money. Right? What they're doing is they're taking the actual truth of it and they're taking it out. Now, 
I, I understand this. I have said that before at different times in different ways. Is this statement exactly for everybody the exact same? Not the Scripture, the application. The Scripture's for everybody exactly the way it's written, but not necessarily the application of it. Aiden? Right. Sure. No, no, no. I think you're right. Let me let me put a couple of um, uh, caveats to that. Okay. One is you have to be careful that after the cross, there still is no perfection after the cross. Here's another thing that we, that that is uh, specific to evangelical going toward charismatic, rather than going backwards to mainline or Catholicism. We believe in what's called progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. In other words, you're always going to be working on it. You don't. Um, so, so going to 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, that which is perfect has come, some people believe that you're already wrapped up. Now, once saved, always saved will fall into this category. Unconditional eternal security is a way to say that. That, um, that which is perfect has come, then, then the gifts of the Spirit, certain gifts, they just use certain. That's is the funny thing about that. But um, these things are done away with. They're, they say that that's the Word of God. That which is perfect has come is the Word of God. So then you're complete. You are sanctified. It's finished. There is no, you're not going to fall after that, okay? We don't believe that. We believe free will exists after the cross just like it does before. Uh, we believe in progressive sanctification, that you are a work in progress until you get to eternity, okay? So that which is perfect in verse 13, of uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is not the Word of God, it's Jesus himself. When that which is perfect, that's Jesus. Nothing is perfect except Jesus, Okay? Jesus is perfect. When that which is perfect has come, then we won't need prophecy because prophecy is declaring Jesus. Well, if he's standing there, you don't need to declare him. Uh, we won't need um, uh, uh, messages in tongues, interpretation like that. Why? Because that's the Spirit speaking to us. If Jesus is standing there, then he can say it for himself. Right? That's why, if you go back to that list in 13, it makes sense if you put Jesus there instead of the Word. Okay? Now, with that being said, until Jesus pulls us to him as his bride... We are still a work in, in, in process, progress, okay? We're being worked on. It's progressive sanctification. So perfection can't happen after the cross, too. Now, here's the tricky part with, there, there's one caveat to what you said that everything else I agree with. Let me put one thing that, to me, is a little different. If you say, okay, Jesus knew he was not going to make the right decision, that's where I would struggle with. And here's a few basic reasons. Jesus, while being completely God on this earth, in, in the incarnation, in human flesh, he still was not operating as God. He was voluntarily not operating as God. He had taken the godness of who he was, his deity, and he had set that on the mercy seat. And that's what um, later in Hebrews where it talks about that um, he comes and puts his blood on that mercy seat and takes his deity back on. Okay? Um, that's what purchases our, our, um, our, our freedom, our salvation. 
he was not operating as God. He still was God. He, you can't not be God. Um, but he was not operating as God. So therefore, when he asked this guy the question, I believe he had already picked up on who this guy was, and he was picking up on some body language and some understanding, the same way that we could, and also under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is speaking to Jesus potentially about this guy. It doesn't explain that, but I, some of this I think is a given. Um, and so I believe that he was, the Holy Spirit was leading him down this path. But to say that Jesus knew what he was going to do with this, or say, I, would, I don't think that would be true. I think Jesus was, here's the reason. If that's the case, then what's the difference between um, Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him and Judas didn't have a choice in it? I believe Jesus, Judas had a choice. Um, this is where, okay, this is where I think if he would have said, okay, Jesus, I'll do what you're asking, I think Jesus would have had another conversation with him. We assume. We don't know that for sure. But here is part of, the, part of the deal is when Jesus says to be perfect, I think he's doing a, it's a uh, double entendre there is, is the way I look at this. I believe what he is doing is he's speaking to this guy's soul about what this guy's desires are, but what Jesus is saying is a different thing. He's telling this guy, you want to try to be perfect? And the guy's like, yeah, well, yeah, I do. I want to be perfect. Yeah, that's and Jesus, if, if he would have said, yes, I'll sell my possessions, that's when I think Jesus would have said, okay, now let's define perfect. Because what you're searching for and what I define as perfect are two different things. Relationship with Jesus is perfection. Even in all of its silliness, in all of its brokenness, in all of its messiness, relationship with Jesus, true pursuit of Jesus. Let me say it that way. Because even saying relationship with Jesus in today's society is, is deter. Is de is defined so many different ways. We believe in Christianity, in American Christianity, we believe that you can have a relationship with Jesus and treat him like trash every single day. And we actually think that's a true definition of relationship with Jesus. I struggle with that. Okay. I think then Jesus would have said, okay, now let me explain to you what I believe perfection is, what perfection really is. This is where the spirit and truth part comes in. He's going to give him truth. If he really says, okay, then I'll sell my possessions. Now his heart is in the right place to go to the worship in truth rather than religious search per, for physical perfection. And I believe that's what Jesus is doing there. And I believe Jesus is giving this guy an opportunity to make the right decision. And I believe all through Scripture and, and even today, here's where you got to be careful. If Jesus would have asked him that question knowing he was going to fail and walk away, then what hope do you have to not do the exact same thing? The Holy Spirit. So I believe Jesus had the opportunity. Now here, John also says, in John chapter 3, I think it is, Jesus says, um, John says that right now you have the Holy Spirit with you, but later it will be in you. So the Holy Spirit still was there with to operate with this guy. The difference is later he's going to have the opportunity to be in field or empowered. Now, with that being said, I believe Jesus was hoping, desiring, and being led by the Holy Spirit for this guy to make the right decision. But he doesn't. And, and the reason is because of his possessions. So the simple answer here, this is, this is where I was getting to earlier. Usually our, our disclaimer, every time we read the scriptures, that doesn't mean Jesus wants you to sell all your goods and all this stuff and follow him. If you start off with that, you're already missing the point of the whole thing. Jesus was wanting this guy to sell everything and follow him. How do we know that? You would say, well, but Jesus doesn't do that with people. He did it with all the disciples. 
He did it with many of his followers. In fact, I'm talking about Mary Magdalene this weekend. And, and Mary literally, Mary Magdalene literally left everything she had and became a supporter of Jesus completely. Jesus does want you to leave everything behind. He says, does that mean I gotta sell everything? Now, here is where the caveat becomes reality for us in, in how we in the pragmatic application. Um, when he says, sell all your worthy possessions, for you and I, depending on where we are and what place and what's going on in our life, they may not be possessions to us. They may be things that we understand God has given us to be, but he still owns, right? But does that mean he's, he really does mean so? Yes, he does mean surrender everything. So what happens tomorrow if Jesus takes everything away from you? You'll know whether you had, in your heart, gotten rid of those things or not. You'll know whether they owned you or you owned them. You'll know that. And that's what Jesus is trying to get, say to this guy. He says to this guy, let me break it down real simple. He says to this guy, are you searching for perfection? The guy says, yes. Well, then do this and you'll have perfection. Because according to even a spiritual context of the application of the law, that was a true thing. The problem is the guy was searching for a human perfection, so he could never sell his stuff because his human perfection says, I have to have money, resources, and everything else to actually be what I think perfection is. I have to have all my life. I have to be in control, all this, or, or, or the perfection is already elusive to me. And, and, then if, and, I, and I do believe that if he would have said, okay, Jesus, I'll do that. I meant Jesus would then sit down here. Let me explain. Perfection is pursuing me. It's not the selling of the possessions. It's the following Jesus. It's the heart behind it. And did he really want to pursue Jesus? He didn't really want to pursue Jesus. Because when he said, if I sell everything, I can pursue you. He said, well, I don't. He said he went away sad because he had too much stuff. What was he really saying? I don't want to pursue Jesus more than I whatever. Need this, want this stuff. Tom? Right. That's exactly it. Which those things are not, those are not mutually exclusive, serving Jesus and taking care of your finances. But what Jesus was saying is this owns you. That's what you're serving. You can't serve me because you're serving this. If you'll serve me, you'll arrive at perfection. What's perfection? Pursuit of God. Tim? I think Jesus was, was drilling down. He definitely was drilling down where he knew he needed to. Here's a question. Is there, is there a commandment missing? There's not ten there. Okay, so here's another thing. What about, um, what about coveting? That's a, that's a both, is it not? 
Because coveting says, I can't, I can't respect what God has given me. I've got to have what I can get. So it's not this way. It's only this way. And that's what that guy was doing. He was, only, he was only thinking about world stuff. So Jesus took the biggest thing in his life and said, okay, get rid of all that. Now follow me because I'm the direction. And the guy just couldn't go there. He couldn't go to the direction part. He could only go to the, to the what I'm trying to accomplish part. Right? If, yes, sir. Yes. Where did Mary Magdalene get her wealth from, though? Okay, we're not getting too close to my message this weekend. Let's. We'll answer this question. Where did Mary Magdalene get her wealth from? Two basic sources. She operated in the occult, and she was a prostitute. She was demon-possessed. Scripture says that, and she operated in that, and... She was also a prostitute. That's where she got her income from. That's all we're going to say about that because this is my. I, I need to. I need it to be fresh Sunday morning, but you can think about that a little bit. So, but yeah, she was wealthy, but her but her finances came from not good places. All right. So, um, well, I had a whole other section of scripture we're going to, but we'll we'll stop right there. Verse twenty two says, "When the young man heard this, he went away very sad, for he had many possessions." You know what what. The, the, the irony of that whole sentence is, what it should have said was, when this, this man walked away and Jesus was sad because he missed it. He missed it. He missed the whole thing, Tom. Yeah, yeah. It's supposition. Um, here's the other thing with that is, I don't think he was a bad guy. I think he was a nice guy, and I think he was an inquisitive guy. I think he was hungry. But when he actually came up, his hunger led him to Jesus. This is the crazy part. He got to have the conversation with Jesus himself. And he, then he walks away. Tim? It's, it's opposite of predestiny. He chose to walk away, yeah. Exactly. That's the point. If he would have just said, okay, Jesus, I'm hitching up with you. Man, what could have his life have been? Instead, he walks away. All right, we're late. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Because, Lord, I believe you, you give every one of us in this room, you give every one of us the opportunity to make a decision. Right now, you're doing this. Do we want to pursue you or do we want to pursue something else? Lord, I want to pursue you. Jesus, with everything in me, I want to pursue you. Lord, it is so easy to, to get that convoluted in my spirit and for other things to flash by and I begin to chase those things. Lord, I rebuke that. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke that for me and for every one of us in here. Lord, don't let us walk away sad because our heart's attached to something else. Lord, help us to choose you, to choose you over everything. Tomorrow, we're going to have choices. We choose you. This, next month, we're going to have choices. We choose you. 
Lord, help us to do that in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.